0: Of all the disciplines that we are looking at through this season, of the 12 disciplines, I would say none of them have quite the same level of baggage as the subject that we're going to be looking at this morning. Today we examine the discipline of submission. In an age of Me Too, church abuse scandals, domestic violence, we have seen the misuse of submission. Uh, Unequal power dynamics have empowered predatory and evil behavior and have often been rationalized with a disordered understanding of this doctrine, whether it's taking place in the church or outside. Now, I want to acknowledge up front that there might be some of you, maybe many of you, listening to me right now that have stories where this has been your experience come to mind places where you have been the victims of abusive or oppressive behavior. And those types of experiences are going to shape the way that we view a subject like this. And so if I am describing your situation this morning, and especially if that offense has been done in the name of Jesus or in the context of faith, let me first say that I'm sorry. There shouldn't be the kind of tolerance for that kind of evil in the church that has too often been allowed. Whether it's charismatic leaders in positions of authority who they're too effective to let them go. They're given a pass for their behaviors. Or whether it's just something out of embarrassment, churches or other communities have tried to squelch it. So I want to apologize on behalf of the church for those of you who have suffered in those ways. But I also want to encourage us that these experiences that I'm describing are the polar opposite of what the discipline of submission ought to be about. Right? The purpose of submission is not about lording power over others. So we're going to see shortly Jesus turns that any power dynamic that we might see upside down. Remember, as we've been going through these disciplines, the thing that I've said over and over again is that the disciplines are about transformation. The goal is freedom for us, freedom for the soul. Now, that might be odd to think about, freedom considered in the same breath as submission. But the discipline of submission is about an interior freedom. If all we're concerned about are the exterior results, we're going to find ourselves straying into law, straying into legalism. Uh, Mike and I have been reading a book called Soulkeeping by John Ortberg, and one of the chapters that I read this week, he was talking about we have freedom from and we have freedom for. And so often our world has talked about freedom as freedom from, that we want to be unencumbered from anything that might bind us. But what Jesus calls us to is a freedom for, where we're invited to, to live under His authority so that we might experience freedom. Think about it this way, right? I, we were just talk, I was talking with a few of you about soccer. I, I love playing soccer. Soccer has rules. If you choose to, uh, you know, you, you need to abide by the rules or the referee is going to blow the whistle and call a penalty. Imagine trying to play soccer where there were no rules. The rules allow you, by playing under the confines of them, the context of them, it allows you to enjoy the game more freely. That is freedom for in this. So as you come to the conversation this morning about submission, I just invite you to open your hearts and minds, not just to an overview of this spiritual practice, but what might Christ be calling you to in light of this? The pathway that we want to walk is the pathway of freedom in Christ. So if you, if you would join with me this morning, I want to provide a definition of submission. Given the contentious nature of this concept, I want to make sure that we're on the same page, that we have a, a similar understanding of what we're actually talking about. Then I'm going to look at some examples of how Jesus and the New Testament defined this practice. Then we'll talk about the limits, where might it be wise for us not to submit and then close with seven acts of submission that Richard Foster suggested. All of these, this material is, um, uh, you know, supplemented with with scripture, but is is often through uh, Richard Foster's book, the the celebration of discipline, which is just a phenomenal book on this con- kind of these contemplative spiritual practices. So let's begin by defining submission. Oh, I still have simplicity up there. Switch simplicity with submission. Submission is the ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get our own way. It's a way that we can carry ourselves. It's, it's submission has less to do with the way that others are acting and more about your own inward heart attitude. Right? As we've discussed, these disciplines are about freedom. So you could say that the corresponding freedom with submission is we're, we're, we're free to give up our right. We're free to give up our rights for the good of someone else. You see, most things in life are not as important as we think that they are. I mean, picture any experience you might have had with church flight fights or church splits that occur. A lot of them have been over really silly things like the color of the carpet or the style of music that's used in the service. We might bring really strong opinions to these discussions, but without freedom, without the freedom to give in to one another, everything becomes a hill that you're willing to die on. You dig in, and you refuse to lose or yield to that tug of war. Now, I see this all the time in my own life. I have trouble with flexibility. I mean, I'm, I'm literally like physically not flexible as well, but, uh, but emotionally uh, not flexible. When I have an expectation of how something is going to go and that expectation changes suddenly, I get really grumpy. Like, ask my wife or my kids. The the change in expectation might actually be something positive, something enjoyable, but I get stuck in my expectations of how I expected things to go, and I don't want to budge. Now, usually with enough time, I warm up to it, but it stems from an inability to change what I want to do for the sake of someone else. It's a failure to submit. Submission helps us discern what are these critical issues that perhaps we should, you know, be a little bit of a stick in the mud, versus what's my own stubborn self-will. Right, one of the primary words in this conversation is control. Do I need to be in control? I don't know about you, but I am a control freak. Do I fight to maintain that control? Submission means that we al- allow others to actually have control to some extent over us, and ultimately that a recognition that God is in control. Now, as I mentioned ago, the focus of this discipline should be in yourself. Talking about subjects like this, it can be common that as I'm speaking that there might be people coming to mind that you wish would take this to heart, like, man, they really, this person really needs to learn to submit. You know, maybe it's your spouse, or your kid, or your parents. I know my kids would think that I need to learn that more, a friend. But you can't control the growth and transformation of someone else, right? If you feel the need to instruct someone else in submission, chances are you've kind of wandered beyond what the, the boundaries of these disciplines are supposed to be about. Now, the ethic of our day is not about submission. It's more focused on selfishness. You scratch my back, and I'll scratch yours. It's about what do I get out of these interactions. Even if I do give in, again, what's going to be coming back to me? I know some of you in in here like the Enneagram. This is an unhealthy two. Type two is a helper. They are a caregiver. They're generous. Their basic desire is to be loved. So the fear is that they're gonna feel unwanted or perceived as unworthy of love. So someone who operates on this framework, who is unhealthy, might appear to be very caring. They might appear to be giving of love to others all the time. But that love is conditional. It's not really a genuine care for their good of someone else, but it's based on selfishness, right? If I love you well, Now there's this expectation that you need to love me in return, that you need to reciprocate this. So even acts of love can be skewed to be about yourself. Again, that's not submission. It's not about what we get out of it. Submission gives us the freedom to not focus on ourselves so that we can give way to others for their genuine good. So let's look at some Bible, how some of the New Testament frames this for us. Now, the scriptures teach the practice of mutual and at times sacrificial submission with those around us. And God doesn't just give us a command to live this way, but demonstrates this in himself, in the nature of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're all fully God, yet distinct, one being, distinct persons is the language of the Trinity, But we see in the scriptures, right, that Jesus submits his will to that of the Father. I mentioned, I think, last week that even in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus expressing this feeling that I want to kind of do things my way, but God, I yield to your will. Now, there's no hierarchy based upon value. There's no person of the Trinity who is greater than the other just because of their existence, but there's a willingness to give way to the other here's a few rapid fire verses from jesus which highlight this ethic for us matthew 5 44 but i say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you loving those who if it was up to you probably wouldn't have to love that's submission matthew 5 39 but i say to you do not resist the one who is evil but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek Turn to him, the other, also. So being willing to be struck not just once, but twice, Jesus says in this symbolic way. Luke nine twenty three. and he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus is saying that in order to love others well, we must deny ourselves. He calls us to self denial. Now, that's not the same thing as self hatred. That's a very important distinction. But it means that our happiness is not, our fulfillment is not dependent upon getting what we want in a situation. Have you ever experienced someone who acts kind of like a a martyr? It comes across as humility or submission, but it's really just another form of pride. You know, let's say you're, you're at a family gathering, you know, you're having, uh, we'll say Easter, since that's coming up, Easter lunch with your family, and Auntie Sally makes a comment like, wow, that salad was delicious, I'd love a little more, but I'm, I'm gonna save it for someone else who might want it. Now in that moment, Aunt Sally is playing the martyr. She's expressing how much she wants the salad and wants more, but look how gracious she is. Look how humble she is. She's allowing someone else to have this. But it's drawing attention to that act of submission, of yielding, of giving way. Again, not submission, self-aggrandization. Let me give you another example. You're having an argument with one of your friends and you've made your point and your friend blurts out, I guess you're right, I'm just a terrible friend. They're seemingly conceding that debate to you. But they didn't go through the route of submission or self-denial. They're going through the route of self-contempt, often trying to garner pity, right? What do they want you to say? Oh, no, 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 you're not, you're not a bad friend. They're looking for you to respond in that way. Submission and humility, I think, share a lot in common. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. This isn't self-contempt, but it's, thinking, it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Richard Foster would say this kind of humility is the touchstone, the self-denial is the touchstone of the discipline of submission. So we saw Jesus live this out on his time on earth. Yes, he submitted to the Father, he died for our sins, but he not only died a cross death, but he also lived a cross life. He lived a life of self-denial. We see this ethic highlighted so eloquently in Philippians chapter two, which holds up Jesus as an example to us as motivation for why we should care for others. Think of the interests of others above our own. I'm not gonna read it this morning, it's kind of long, but it's a worthwhile passage to read and study. Jesus turned over the power matrix of his day. He told his disciples something radical, that, the, that leadership is found through service to all. And Jesus practiced this. He regularly met met with the children. People, children were not necessarily respected to be hanging out with the adults. They should be, you know, not seen and not heard. He shooed others away when they tried to tell the kids to leave Jesus alone. He washed the disciples' feet, a task that was reserved for the lowliest servant of the house. Now, we give a lot of attention to him washing Peter's feet because Peter kind of pushes back against Jesus, is like kind of struck by the audacity of what Jesus is doing. But in hindsight, think about this for a moment. He washed the feet of all the disciples, Judas included. He knelt on the ground, wiping the dirt and grime off of the feet of the person that he knew full well was going to to betray him. Maybe you've seen some of these I- images. They've circled social media uh, of Jesus washing the feet. You know, I, I'm probably going to upset someone with all these images. But the goal, it, the idea is that Jesus, it demonstrates Jesus. Think about it. Jesus washing Judas' feet. Jesus washing the feet of Donald Trump. Washing the feet of Joe Biden. Washing the feet of someone from the LGBTQ community. Washing the feet of a convict. There's there's plenty more, doctors, police officers, right? The alcoholic that's in the bottle. The idea behind this is that Jesus, I believe, would have washed the person following him, who might not have agreed with everything that he did, because Jesus lived a life of submission. Again, that doesn't take anything away from Jesus. Jesus was in full control of himself, but he was willing to show acts of love for even those that the world might have disrespected or he should have disrespected or disliked. The other New Testament authors continued the legacy that Jesus started. You know, why don't you pull out your Bibles and look at this one with me? Well, let's look at Colossians chapter 3 because this is a pretty heavy verse. Just for the record, they, they told me they were leaving, so it's, it's not because it's not of the images I put on the screen. Good luck at your game. All right, Colossians chapter 3. This is one of those passages that have been so often weaponized in our power struggles. That's the antithesis of biblical submission. Now, you've probably encountered this verse, or similar verses found in Ephesians 5. The ESV paragraph heading listed as rules for Christian households. All right, I'm picking up at verse 18 and going to the first verse of chapter 4. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Treat your bondservants justly and fair- fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. I have to wonder why the, like, people who broke it up put verse 1 of chapter 4 with chapter 4, because it clearly fits back with the stuff at the end of chapter 3. Now, there's a lot to unpack in this text, and I'm probably just going to be able to scratch the surface this morning in this. Right. The passages like this have been used to advocate for uh, male headship in a household, what is called the, a complementarian perspective contrasted with egalitarian which is more of each party is equal uh, in in leadership this passage has been used in history to advance the cause of slavery in our nation but the passage and others like it are used selectively individual verses or statements are pulled out of it and the entire doctrines are made out of them Instead of not, under, under, not only understanding the whole passage, but what is that passage context in h- the broader culture of history? You know, just as a brief aside, I just want you to know, like, there are a lot of debates in the church over complementarian and egalitarian, which is the biblical norm. I'm not addressing that for you this morning. I'm not solving that dilemma. So if you came looking for that, you're not going to get it. What, there are compelling cases for both perspectives. What we're concerned about this morning is not the ordering of relationships but what does submission look like for us as followers of Jesus Christ. That is what we're trying to get at this morning. So getting back to this Colossians passage, there are a few things we can glean from it. First is that the posture of submission is for all who follow the Lord. I know the word submission, the English word submission, only occurs in reference to wives in this passage. But it's clear given the context that Paul is casting a very wide net in terms of how followers should conduct themselves, right? Wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. The, The opening verse in this paragraph that is, is parallel in Ephesians chapter 5, makes this clear. Ephesians 5, 21, again, there's usually like a subject heading between 21 and 22, but I think 521 is supposed to relate with everything that follows after. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The posture of every believer is meant to be one of submission to each other. Now, what is revolutionary in this passage? is precisely who's listed. Now, in the ancient world, it would have been entirely expected for wives to be told to submit to their husbands, for children to obey their parents, and for slaves to serve their masters well. That's expected. That's the submission that follows the social order of the day. In fact, women, children, and slaves wouldn't really have had to change any of their normal day-to-day behavior to be obedient to the commands of Paul that we see here. It's just how the wor- world worked. What is revolutionary was that men, fathers, and masters are given instructions that they're expected in some way to yield to their wives, children, and slaves. That wasn't the way the world was supposed to work. In the words of Richard Foster, he said, quote, What we fail to see is how much submission those commands demanded of the dominant partner in his cultural setting. I mean, think about this. We still see this plenty in our own culture. Uh, Just to use the example of masculinity. It's often connected with strength and power. In our day, there are stigmas for men who would constantly yield to women. They're called weak. They're called pejoratively effeminate or a little bit more crassly. You may have heard the term. They're, They're whipped, right? Paul's revolutionary in advocating for mutual submission something that I think our generation can still learn a thing or two. Because ancient writers describe submission based upon one's station in life. If you were a woman, a child, or a slave, you were a tier below your superiors. You should have been subordinate to them. But there is not one New Testament author who appeals to submission on this basis. What we see in Jesus is that he levels the playing field. There was no more value placed on social hierarchy. Regardless of your seeming station in life, you were valuable in God's sight. You had intrinsic worth. Now, I think one of the places we see this most profoundly is in the little New Testament letter of Philemon. It's real short, just one chapter long, but it is packed with countercultural power. So Paul is writing to a friend of his, Philemon, And Philemon is a person of means in the Roman Empire. Well, Philemon had a slave, a servant, named Onesimus. And Onesimus fled. He escaped his master. But through Paul's traveling, he encounters Onesimus. And Onesimus, through this, becomes a Christian. So what does Paul do? Paul encourages Onesimus to return to the service of Philemon. And he sends Onesimus this letter, which is Philemon that we have in the Bible. But check out verses 15 to 16. In advocating to Philemon, Paul says this, For this perhaps is why he, Onesimus, was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Now again, in isolation, kind of sounds that it's like Paul is given a stamp of approval on slavery. And I don't think that's what's going on, because what he says next is, You might have him back forever, no longer as a servant." But more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. So what Paul is commanding, compelling Philemon to do is to receive Onesimus back, but as a blood brother. right? Paul is compelling Philemon to set Onesimus free from his slavery. Radical in the nature of it in the ancient world, just for becoming a Christian. Now, I hope you're seeing the radical nature of this ramifications that the gospel has on our lives, right? It, it, it prevents us from having to cling so tightly to our rights. I like the words of Martin Luther. He said, a Christian is perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant to all, subject to all. He balances this freedom that we've been freed by the gospel, but that freedom is for something. It's given us the ability to let go of our need, let go of the need to have our own way, and through the path of self-denial that we can think about the needs of others above our own. But are there limits to submission? Are there times when we shouldn't yield to others, right? Are we called just to be doormats walked over by everyone. Now, the Bible is not clear on that, but it it does give us some glimpses into that tension. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 14 tells us this. Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And he keeps going. Basically, he says, be subject to the government. But also, Peter, in Acts chapter 4, verses 13 to 22, we have, Peter and John, they're arrested by the local leaders, and, you know, they let them go the slap on the wrist, and they say, you can't, they tell Peter and John, you can't teach in the name of Jesus anymore. Peter says this, quote, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to, ra- to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So Peter says, be subject to the governing authorities, but also Peter, ah, that's a, that's a rule I can't follow, That's a command from the government I can't follow, right? My first accountability is to God. So submit to the authorities, but there are limits to that submission. Now these limits to submission are kind of like a moving target. There is no one-size-fits-all scheme. Richard Foster suggests this is the limit. He says submission reaches the end when it becomes destructive. Submission basically should no longer be practiced when it is destructive. Again, very subjective language. Sometimes it's easy to see those limits. A child that's asked by an adult to do something illegal or immoral. A citizen tasked with something unbiblical like fraud or murder, right? Those are circumstances that you should not submit to. But there's a whole lot of stuff that feels like it's in that gray area. Where do you go? Let's say you are a spouse at who are at home. You're at home and you feel stifled by the career of your partner. Do you lovingly submit to his or her career trajectory? Or do you make your feelings known and request a change? What if you are an employee who's just been passed up for a promotion that you were definitely qualified for, and it's pretty evident that the person who received the promotion was not qualified but, you know, was the manager's favorite? What do you do? Do you submit, respecting your boss's decision and let it go? or do you fight back? You know, I, don't, I don't know that there are clear right and wrong answers in those types of situations. There's gonna be plenty of times that we have to figure it out, what that looks like. And that's gonna require for us a deep dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Right, I, I wish I could just give you, I mean, so often when I preach, I wish I could just give you like, here's the list of four things to do, right? You do these four bullet points, your life is gonna be great. You'll know the answer to every problem, but that's not the way the world works. But but there's hope because God has given us the Holy Spirit to, to discern, to be convicted, to see what path, right, make those subtle changes in our lives, right? The Holy Spirit can help us understand whether this is a genuine concern or that we're just being a little salty because our stubborn wills don't like losing. I would just ask, don't Use the Holy Spirit as a scapegoat to sanctify whatever you want to do. Right? Don't say, you know, the Lord told me to do this. Really, it's just you that wants to do that. Right? That's that's a, a danger in that. So to close, I wanna I wanna end with Foster's seven acts of submission. And, and I know there's a lot in this. that was not super concrete for you. Uh, We'll continue a little bit more of that application next week when we look at service because submission and service as you might guess are pretty closely related but for now here's some areas that we can um, that foster provides that suggests of what are some relationships that we ought to think about submission in our lives and i would say the first two or three in particular are in a priority order after that different people are going to put different priorities on them but here we go let's say first submission is to the triune god right enough said our first priority in life is to god and god alone everything else must follow under fall under that authority second closely related to the first is submission to the scriptures as i shared through the week on study the bible is the word of god right god's revelation breathed out by the holy spirit it is his revelation to us so that we might know him better and know ourselves and the world better as well. After that, submission to our family. Now, this is a hard one, because so often it is the people that we love the most in this world that the ones that we are most likely to take for granted, we're most likely going to stubbornly assert our wills. There's some psychology behind that with bonding and the security of the relationship, but submission is important to our family. How are we, and I mean, this is like, some of you know that, because I, I share it from time to time, that like there are times where, you know, we now officially have a teenager in the house, and there's a lot of this going on. And there are times where I'm right, but there's times where even if I'm right, I don't need to be right in that moment. You know, so so a lot of this is me to myself saying, How do I need to submit to my kids? And not just being like, no, you know, there's that, there's that, the phrase of of uh You know, the child that thought its name was no, because all they were told was no, no, no. Anyway, move on. Fourth, submission to our neighbors. How can we care for and serve them, right? No task is too small, but each is an opportunity to serve. Maybe it's a dead battery of your neighbor that needs to have a jump start. Maybe going out of your way to grab a a gallon of, of distilled water for an elderly neighbor. Name the inconvenience. What might it look like for us to give up our need to get our way give up our need to our time and give it to others to help those around us fifth submission to the believing community this might like be like finding a place to serve the church and we'll talk about this more next week i'm sure you can't do everything but everyone could do something the church is like a family right we've got all different responsibilities to bring to the table Sixth, submission to the broken and despised jesus put aside his privilege to care for those on the outskirts of life. How do we live a cross life towards the drought, the the, uh, the downtrodden? Now, something I do want to h- highlight in this, it could be a little controversial, but I think one avenue maybe for us to consider this is our understanding of reality. Because usually the dominant worldview is seen as truth. That's just the way that life is because it's what's readily accepted by society. But all of us have our own biases. The disciplines of critical race theory and intersectionality actually address this because they suggest that perhaps just because the dominant culture uh, sees things a certain way, that may not be 100% accurate. And So their suggestion is that those who have a history of being oppressed might view the world, might view scriptures, might view life somewhat differently. So what does submission look like to listen? It doesn't mean you have to buy everything that they're selling. But what does it mean to listen and critically examine what individuals from those communities are expressing instead of just, you know, dismissing it as woke? So there you go. That's a way that we can learn and submit to the downtrodden. Submission to the world We can't live in isolation. No being is an island. You know, we saw this, like, submit to the government, but there's limits to all of that. That's why it's at the bottom. So my encouragement is may we be a people who learn to give up our right to be right, that we would experience freedom, that this would be freeing for us, and not that we're just, like, doing it, you know, by force, doing it to show That's not legalism, that we would consider others good, that God would create a heart that we can consider the good of others above our own. And so here's just some ways, our, our reflection questions. Meditate on 2, excuse me, 3 through 11. How does cross-life motivate and empower us to live cross-lives towards others? Again, Jesus has not intended us to do anything that he hasn't already done. He gets us. commercial. We'll here's the second one. This, this is one that's, that's real hard for me. What's a challenging relationship god might be inviting you to carry a posture of greater submission towards think of a relationship maybe that is contentious and what might it look like for you to love that person by submitting to them a little bit more and then lastly seven acts of submission we don't want to submit honestly we probably just want to continue to have our own way that's that's our selfishness that's kind of the, the human nature but we're called to submit scripturally so which of these seven acts of submission is the most difficult for you and why god scripture family neighbors church the oppressed, and the world. Let's pray and we'll close with one last song. God, thank you for your word that reminds us of the places in which we fall short of your glory. Uh, help heal our hearts so that we can think of others above ourselves that we would, and not that we self-contempt, right? We, we're called to, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, so may we continue to love ourselves, but may that not be the first priority in life. That we could see the blessings that you've given us as a pathway for blessings for others that you've you know, provided us that we, you know, that we wouldn't just fall uh, prey to a cultural m- mode of operation that ranks people as, as you know, good and bad or in or out, but that we would acknowledge through the gospel that, uh, that you've leveled that playing field. Lord, that we would be willing to, to give up our rights to seek first your kingdom and to seek the welfare of others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.